You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. Hello and welcome to The Edition Podcast with me, Cindy Yu. It's a podcast from The Spectator where we pick out some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages with the writers behind them. This week, I'll be taking a look at how China has fared so well out of the pandemic. I'll also be hearing about whether or not Test and Trace was doomed from the start. And at the very end, all the excuses that coronavirus has given people. First up. China's Q3 growth figures came out this week, and they were pretty good. The economy grew by 4.9%, while much of the rest of the world is still mired in coronavirus misery. Rana Mitter, a history professor specialising in China, takes a look at how COVID has accelerated China's rise in this week's cover piece. He joins me on the podcast now, together with Nigel Inkster, formerly at MI6 and now the Senior Advisor for Cybersecurity and China at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. So Rana, you write that in the beginning of the year, China was in defiant retreat, and now it's in a declaration of victory. Can you tell us about it? I think that's right, Cindy, that if you had had to predict what was going to happen at the beginning of the year when the pandemic broke out, a lot of people, including it seemed people in China itself, and it's often quite shrill social media, thought that this was going to be a period of real damage to the government and to Xi Jinping, the president and general secretary of the party in particular. And it hasn't worked out that way at all. When I talk, as I know, you know, all of us, I think, do to friends in China on uh, video calls in over the last few weeks and months, it's all been very much about life being quite normal, um, like commiserations for what's happening in Britain, but we're off to a restaurant or, or off, to, off on holiday. So something has clearly happened in between. And I think there are two or three key things that have come together. The first one, and I think you do have to give a significant amount of credit to the Chinese government for this, is that there has been a very determined and coordinated sense that quashing the virus as much as possible has to be the first, second and third priority. So we've seen a whole variety of measures, um, very, very intrusive but efficient, track and trace measures through mobile phones, QR codes and so forth. I haven't been back to China for some time, but I'm told that basically, you know, the inside of subway carriages, public transport, wherever you go, QR codes all over the uh, all over the place. In addition, there's been a very strong sense that the party's propaganda machine has been turned first and foremost towards pushing back against the virus. And uh, one particular metaphor that as a historian I, or analogy that I, I've enjoyed is the description that this is a a people's war against the virus, which any student of Chinese history will recognise as a term really first popularised by Mao Zedong, uh, no less, back in the 30s and 40s. He was fighting the Japanese, Xi Jinping is fighting the virus, but they're using a similar sort of analogy. So I think there's a combination of propaganda and real pragmatic policy that have come together that mean, to the surprise of many, at least as we are now, China has become one of the more impressive examples of virus suppression. All roads lead back to Mao. (laughs) Nigel, how does this change the West relationship with China? It's already rocky from this pandemic. And now it seems that China is the one shooting out, recovering, whereas, you know, we in the West and certainly in Britain are still quagmired. Well, I think it's particularly germane to China's uh, rapidly deteriorated relationship with the United States, where you know the, the, the U.S. Uh, response to the virus is almost the 
direct antithesis of uh, what China itself did. There's no getting away for it from the inadequacy of the US response or indeed the UK response or that of other European governments. As Rana said, you know, the, the, this initially looked like a potential Chernobyl moment for Xi Jinping happened. Why did they let it get out of control? But once they you know, sort of realized the gravity of the situation, they moved hard and fast to deal with it. We in the West had the opportunity to learn from China's example, and we failed, stroke refused to do it. In America, what we've seen is a reaction which seeks to heap the blame on China for having started the thing, calls for an international uh, investigation into the origins of the virus, uh, suggestions that uh, this may have been uh, you know, escaped from a laboratory in Wuhan, calls for economic reparation, all this sort of thing, uh, which has pushed China into a somewhat... Uh, you know, a defensive position. China, you know, engaged in mask diplomacy, which didn't go very well. It's now looking to engage in immunization diplomacy, if indeed a vaccine, uh, a, a, an effective vaccine can be found, all of these things. But I think what it's done, in, in certainly for China, it, it's kind of reinforced an already existing narrative of the West in decline, And we've seen China uh, adopting a more sort of confrontational approach to the world more generally, the West more generally. I've likened it a bit to Millwall uh, Football Club, as in nobody likes us, we don't care. You're going to have to learn to deal with us, get over it. But that's a brilliant message, Nigel, to, for British um, and Western policymakers. Rana, we're talking a lot about how well China has defeated the virus. There's a lot of suspicion in the West, though, about whether or not China really has defeated the virus. I was looking at the figures last night, and China claims to not have had a single coronavirus death since April. That's quite low. <laughs> you see your eyebrows moving. So can we trust China when it says we've defeated the virus? So there's a question about what we mean by the word defeat there. And uh, I'm not one who spends all my time trying to quote ancient Chinese philosophy in the way that uh, you get in those books you buy at airports on business practice before getting on on a flight in the days when we used to to fly. But I might just point out that, you know, one of the implications of Sun Tzu and the the art of war, uh, the bingfa, is that um, you never entirely know whether you have defeat or victory. It can always go one way or another until you've really pushed it down. So I think in one sense, I mean, you know, to be serious, the Chinese, I think, have already answered a question which we are still asking ourselves, which is, what does defeating the virus mean? And right now in the UK, we're having a huge argument, you know, across parties, across politics about whether it means complete elimination of the entire virus, or whether it means having to live with it until such time as we hope we get a vaccine. My sense is that China has decided quite some time ago, actually, probably earlier this year, that what they're doing now, which is a combination of very heavy surveillance of the wider population to check for outbreaks, such as the one earlier this week in the city of Qingdao in eastern uh, China, where there were a scattering of, of cases and basically there was you know, an immediate move to test hundreds of thousands of, of people within a period of, uh, of days, will be something that they're expecting to do week after week, month after month, for quite some period of time. And that counts as defeating the virus. The reason being that if you do that and you're China, 
it would appear. You can then do all the things which we're also trying to do in the UK, including, you know, getting the economy going again. So people are going, you know, the Golden Week holiday we've just had, China's biggest holiday weeks. It would seem that over 500 million people, half a billion people, were on various forms of transport during that time. But the flip side, and the reason why I'm afraid I have to, you know, to an audience that I know is hugely international, but we're here in Britain, why we can't simply adopt this method is this. The Chinese calculus, and this is the Chinese Communist Party's calculus, is always going to be based on the idea that actually a certain amount of individual sacrifice is a price worth paying for greater collective good. Now, that's not absent from our society, but of course, the level at which we're willing to do that is different. And so if we read the tales, perhaps commoner earlier in the year than now, of people literally being, you know, barricade into their houses in the city of Wuhan to just make absolutely sure that they didn't get out and infect anyone. A complete lockdown on transport so that people were stuck in that city a bit like uh, Oran in Albert Camus' The Plague, which a lot of friends in China were reading then as well, by the way, as, as Westerners. Those are things that I still think even under tier one, tier two, that sort of thing in Britain would be hard to do. So there may be some some defeats of the virus on the Chinese side that would just be unacceptable in a liberal society. And we have to work out how far along that spectrum we really are. Mm. Nigel, you're quite disparaging about America's way that it's dealt with the pandemic. What about the way that it's dealt with China? As we've already talked about this year, the West has really changed how it sees China. Is it effective? That's a very interesting question, because, of course, we've seen this dramatic sea change, which I think first became evident uh, at the beginning of 2018, in in, in my perception, this idea that's taken hold in in the USA that we've been played by China and, and, and that engagement has simply led to the empowerment of this sort of Frankenstein's monster that we're now having to deal with. That is a view that has uh, taken on broad partisan, bipartisan support. But the question is, you know, you know, even if you accept that, what do you do about it? And I think that the USA is still only now in the foothills of putting together a strategy that is actually coherent in, in, in terms of dealing with it. In some areas, like uh, slowing down uh, China's aspirations to dominate uh, fifth-generation mobile technologies, They've been quite effective in a rather crude way by simply stopping selling them the advanced technologies that they're going to need to do it. But that is only you know, a stopgap measure at best. You know, if America is going to mount a credible defence against what they perceive as a China challenge, a lot of this goes to what they you know, need to do to put their own house in order. And actually, the US uh, uh, Congressman Michael McCall, US uh, Congressman for Texas, has just produced a report which sets out in some detail what he thinks the USA does need to do in order to get things back on track, to make it plausible and credible for the USA to manufacture stuff there rather than in China, to incentivize the private sector to go to the next stage of uh, development and saying, yes, and, you know, sort of tax incentives and so on, and even arguing for a return to industrial policy. I say return because there's a kind of trope within America that industrial strategy is fundamentally un-American, which, you know, is rather belied by the military-industrial complex, the space programme, and, dare one suggest, the internet, all of which are, in, in their own ways, manifestations, I would argue, of industrial policy. So there's a lot that America's got to do. The other thing, if they want to be really effective in containing China's more egregious misbehaviours, of which there are, 
many, they, they, they need to work on alliance relationships, which under the current administration have been comprehensively trashed over the last four years. And again, I think certainly that you know, if you talk to the Democrats, you know, they are very alive to all of this. So how effective in practice you know, they're, they're going to be remains to be seen. I mean, the challenge for America is, unless they actually do want to go to war with China, and I hope uh, and I believe they don't, they've got to find some kind of modus vivendi. And that in, is going to involve some hard, pragmatic, diplomatic activity backed up by credible behaviour. Rana and Naidu, thank you very much. You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. And next, NHS tests and trades has cost the country £12 billion, and it doesn't have fantastic success. But was it doomed to fail from the start by the very concept? I'm joined by Richard Dobbs, a former director of the McKinsey Global Institute, together with Dr. Elisabetta Grappelli, a virologist at St. George's University, London. So Richard, why do you think it is doomed from the start? I'm not sure, actually, at the time anyone realised it was doomed from the start, but looking back, we can see it's got three fundamental strategic flaws that results in a level of efficiency of only around 10%. First of all, it can't find a lot of the infected people. The issue with our COVID-19 is that it's about two-thirds of people or so are asymptomatic, so don't feel the need to go for a test. And as a result, they're not found by the test and tracing system. So the testing part of the test and tracing system only finds about 40% of the people who actually have the infection. The second issue is the Brits typically have a habit of not grassing up their friends, to use the uh, the lingo. And as a result, only about two-thirds of close contacts are actually provided. And then finally, people have become a little bit immune to government advice. So compliance levels low, people don't pick up the phone when called by a contact tracer. So when we put the whole system together, because of those strategic flaws, we only get about 10% of people being isolated who should be being isolated. Elizabeth, as an expert in public health, how do you see these problems in other test and trace systems that must have been established for other viruses? Is it true that these are flaws in all of these systems? Well, I think the first thing to say is that, uh, as we said many times, this is a novel virus. A novel virus also means a totally novel situation. And so when you have, we are faced with a new situation, what you do is start to apply what you know, what you know that has worked actually for other viruses in this case. And the test trace isolate system has been quite valuable for infections and outbreaks like Ebola. If we remember the 2015, the 2016, actually we brought the infection, the outbreak under control, thanks to the efforts of the test trace isolate system, but also because the virus itself actually allow us to do that. It's something like it's a virus that is amenable to a test and trace system. This is a novel virus. So, so to start with, actually, there was the absolutely idea and impetus to actually to have to put the system in place. However, the most important thing, as actually Richard has already highlighted, is the fact that this virus actually has a lot of asymptomatic infections. And therefore, if you have a system that relies on tests 
testing that relies actually on testing people only that actually show symptoms, then you can see that the test trace isolate system that we've known so far is probably not in its current shape or in its old shape actually going to provide the control that actually we've seen so effective when it comes to, to, to Ebola. So not flow completely and it does work for other viruses including some respiratory viruses but it's certainly not the only thing that we have to implement and as it is when it comes to putting a lid on the current transmission of the coronavirus. But Richard, we hear a lot about the South Korean system where test and trace seems to be the basis of at least some Asian countries' success over coronavirus. So do you think that these flaws are particularly British? You, for example, say that Brits don't believe in grassing on their friends, for example. Uh, I lived in South Korea for six years and there was a degree of discipline in the country. So people would report someone else if there was a an outbreak and people would do what the government told them to. This is a country which had a high degree of that. So they're able to do much better against those other strategic errors. And because they have very few people infected, they're able to track down the the people, sometimes using backtracing, where you get someone who's got the illness, you work out who they got it from, and then you go down the other chains. So they're able to deal with the asymptomatic that way. But they do have a benefit over, over the UK on this discipline of following government advice and also this discipline of realising that the right thing is to report your friends into the tracing process. <laughs> Elisabetta, my frame of reference when it comes to coronavirus is often China, where there's been a flight ban, an effective flight ban since March. So I guess that keeps the infections down low because you're not introducing potentially thousands or tens of thousands of new cases every single day. That's not something that the UK or indeed Europe at large has done because we've valued civil liberties, being able to go on holiday, coming in and out of the country much more. So do you think that it's even possible to ever test and trace at that low level if we don't you know, control who's coming in and who's going out? I think it's absolutely important to, to try to understand uh, how many imported cases there are but also how much uh, community transmission there is. And also in the context, in which context of the outbreak of the pandemic you are. Because to start with, when you have uh, a, a basically uninfected country, like the UK was at some point, you know, making sure that people who were, uh, were infected were not coming in, that was actually the priority. However, later on, and when you have to start, lots of community transmission. So lots of, in the case of, of England, for example, lots of English people transmitting to each other, it actually becomes uh, less relevant actually trying to prevent uh, people from coming in, from from travelling. So there is a context there that needs to be put into into consideration and into context. Testing. Testing seems to help in the sense that it is a targeted testing, not because of symptoms, but because of risk. So the UK, so the advice would be not necessarily to ban all incoming travellers like China is doing. However, to make sure that if someone comes from a a high-risk environment or country, they can actually be tested. However, we need to take into consideration that testing needs to be done in a certain way and also gives us only a snapshot of a situation. So of the, because testing can tell us if someone has an ongoing infection, not if the person is incubating the virus. So in this case, we need to make sure that there is the availability and the possibility of doing repeat testing to make sure actually that the people who are allowed to travel actually are not infected and therefore cannot carry the infection. Mm. And I'd like to add, because I don't think I should have added earlier about the, the contact tracing. 
contact tracing also has a very important role to play to start with when the number of cases is actually lower. If you think about transmission, if you visualize it as a, as a piece of string between two people, so one is infected and passes a piece of string and so now there is a string connecting them. And so then you can trace back the string. But obviously the shorter the string, you know, the easier it is. And obviously, the fewer the other strings that are interconnected, you know, the more likely it is that you can find, you know, everything before it becomes a tangled mess. So all these approaches about uh, testing, test trace and isolate do have a place. And it has to be said that, unfortunately, although we couldn't catch it to start with because it was a new pandemic, but unfortunately, right now, when it comes to, to the UK, when it comes to England, we had the entire summer to prepare and to put in place these pieces of strings tracing before it actually became entangled. And now that it looks like the situation is getting out of control, you know, the test trace system or testing incoming travel actually doesn't seem to be actually the priority action because it's actually all the community and the numbers are so high, the massive drastic actions like lockdowns actually are the only option. Mm. Richard, are you being a bit charitable to the government here by identifying the issues with the system as a concept when, you know, other critics might say it's because the government has gone for a national approach rather than a localised approach where data shows that local councils may be better at tracing contacts than the national system and now the government seems to have listened to that advice. So are we being too charitable to the government? Well, I think there are some things that we have only discovered. The asymptomatic nature of the virus, which is actually the biggest flaw, we only really got a good sense of that in in May, June, and you know, our test and trace system was copied on places where viruses weren't asymptomatic. So SARS is not an asymptomatic. Uh, only about 10, 15% of people with SARS are asymptomatic in comparison to 70% with, with COVID-19. So there are elements of this that I think we have to give the government their due that this was a completely new situation and they developed something copied on systems that worked well and, and rolled it out. So there are some things that actually they got wrong but you know it, it, we give them their due and then there are other bits that their execution has not been good they've scaled up a system incredibly well i mean you know they've got lots of people working on something that didn't exist six months ago but probably they should have used the local teams the local teams have been successful in the uk on a number of other outbreaks and so have a better system so i think the mistake was to try and go too central we should have gone hybrid uh, but but some of it was actually due to structural issues with this virus that really no one could have got right Richard and Elisabetta, thank you very much. You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions. Plus, get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. And last, Harry Mount writes in this week's issue that COVID has become a get-out clause for shoddy service. He joins me on the podcast now together with Melissa Kite, who has had similar experiences that she wrote about in her column. So, Harry, what's been going on? Well, while lots of people were laying down their lives literally for coronavirus, doctors and nurses, quite a few companies used it as an excuse to become lazy and ruthless. And my favourite example was Eurostar. 
in August, put out an announcement saying that as a result of coronavirus, we are only able to offer Wi-Fi in our standard premier and business premier carriages because COVID, as you know, only strikes people in standard carriages. And, <laughs> um, and there was a big backlash against it and they restored it. And that's, that's the perfect example of uh, uh, using a COVID excuse to produce a result that wasn't anything to do with COVID. Melissa, you had a similar experience at the dentist where they try to charge you extra because of COVID. Yes, it's absolutely monstrous. I was rung for my, it was actually Booper Dental rang me to say that my appointment was due. And when I was making the arrangements to what day to come in and so on, she said, "Um, I must make you aware that there is now a £20 COVID surcharge. And I said, well, what's that for? And she said, for the PPE. But I said, hang on a minute. You've got to wear, the, the dentist wears a mask anyway, and gloves. And she said, well, it's not our fault. She said, it's the government. It's, we're, we're forced to do it. So I said, so you're telling me there is legislation compelling dentists to charge £20 extra? At which point she said, obviously, no, there isn't. So, you know, not just delivering a bad service, but making money out of COVID. I mean, come on. But Harry, are we being a bit unfair here? Because you write in your piece about the National Trust and how it's uh, planning to sack curators and junior curators as well. But I can imagine that somewhere like the National Trust where tourism and people going there, you know, selling tickets is such an important part of things. So if lockdown happens, then they are in a bit of a financial sticky position. Yes, and and they have, or they say they've lost £200 million this year. No reason to disbelieve them. But what it means is they can go ahead with the things they want to do anyway, which they wanted to ruthlessly sack the experts, the scholars in architecture archaeology and historic gardens it didn't stop them doing the things they wanted to do which is in the last couple of months they've done these two celebrated things of bringing out a a list of all the national trust houses which have slavery associations and then in august they produced a moronic uh, report by tony berry the director of visitor experience uh, which was saying they wanted to downgrade mansion houses as part of the national trust experience so all the things they want to do they're never going to be touched at all by losing 200 million quids the people they wanted to get rid of which i'm sure they would have got rid of anyway they can blame it on covid and again and again you see it with bodies using it as an excuse because you know this disease can be lethal and it can strike anywhere so it's a brilliant excuse because you can't suddenly argue against it. So Westminster Cathedral has had this huge row for a couple of months about getting, uh, making sure its um, choir can't go to boarding school, meaning that some of the boys can't actually be in the choir. After this huge row, they said they'd bring out a report saying what they really meant about it. And the bringing out of the report, they say, has been delayed because of COVID. Well, we all know, particularly sitting here in the spectator offices, you can write a report anywhere. You don't have to do it at Westminster Cathedral or anywhere else. But the moment you mention COVID, it's like a catch-all Superman suit, which gets you off the hook. I was going to talk about that work from home element of things. Like if you're not in the office, maybe things are harder. Melissa, in your piece uh, for The Spectator a few weeks ago, you've identified a similar problem where you try to ring uh, your doctor for, for a prescription uh, and no one picked up the phone. I guess that's just people working from home and not being by the phones that they're trying to man, but you'd think they'd sort that out. 
well, they're not picking up the phone at the doctors but uh, either, but it was actually the opticians. And in the end, I had to go in. And um, when I got in there, I said, you're just not answering your phone. I've been ringing you for two weeks. And uh, they denied this and said, oh, no, we always answer our phone. And as I was stood there arguing with them, and by the way, there were no customers in there, just me and about four of them. As I was stood there arguing with them, the phone rang <laughs> and they didn't answer it. And they were arguing that they always answered the phone to me. And they said, but the phone's ringing now and you're not answering it. And he said, yes, but I'm dealing with you. And I said, yes, but I've come in to tell you you're not answering the phone. <laughs> I mean, it was completely ludicrous. Um, it's a Monty Python sketch. I'm, I'm fascinated, actually, I must say, about the, the National Trust case, which um, Harry writes about. Because another thing that's been happening to me during lockdown or throughout the whole COVID thing has been the enormous influx of ramblers and walkers and visitors to the countryside. And I wrote a piece a few weeks ago saying, why every time does somebody, somebody parts across my gate where my horse's field is and blocks the gate and then rambles around my horse's field? They've always got National Trust stickers in their car window. And I was baffled by this and I sort of explored the idea that a certain type of person who's a member of the National Trust thinks they can walk around everybody's field. But of course, this, what the, the point Harry makes makes total sense of it. They shut all their car parks down in a COVID excuse. And because their members have got nowhere to go and they're desperate and bored and they're locked down, they're coming and walking around my field. So I'm, I'm quite pleased to actually make sense of that. And it's true that that thing of closing down the beaches and the car parks they did is a classic example of the bureaucrats in these large organisations who, in the face of, you know, this terrible thing, they don't calibrate risk because you can't get rid of this disease at the moment until there's a vaccine. And so do they, they do all they can to shut down everything. And uh, by if... shutting down the car parks for the huge venues at the National Trust and the, the, the huge areas they could have these visitors walk around, they're, they're all cramming into tiny little areas of the countryside. And I've got sort of five, six people rambling around a small farm where I'm trying to manage my own risk. You know, because they can't go and visit, visit National Trust properties. I mean, it's ridiculous. Which course, is exactly the sort of places, the, the safest place on earth to be is, is outside, isn't it? Those huge National Trust places. And again and again, it's about people sensibly calibrating risk or trying to shut down things altogether. So it happened with me on a train to Wales where I change in Cardiff and in the Great Western Railway part of the journey there was a really nice conductor who was wearing a mask and he couldn't look at your tickets because that wasn't allowed and that's fine but he was still walking up and down with a mask at some distance from everyone being really nice and friendly and helpful and I changed trains in Cardiff got on a transport for Wales train and there not the fault of the conductor but the rules insisted that the conductor must go and sit in his cabin for the whole journey and it meant the stop I was going to happen to be a request stop and you literally couldn't request this of the conductor and that's the time well okay maybe you've had those rules then the conductor could be saying over the PA I'm sorry you can't be going through the uh, carriage but if you want a request stop I don't know come on knock on my door or, or, or tell us that you're going to stop anyway which is what they did but instead we got no announcements at all so it's people using COVID as an excuse to do nothing really. Totally. I do hope the public are going to get onto this um, eventually. And every time you get the dreaded announcement in the recorded message, due to COVID, unfortunately, due to COVID, we are unable to provide dot, dot, dot. I really hope the public start giving these companies hell. 
I have to say, to finish off this segment of the podcast, I have to make a confession to you two that when my boyfriend tried to get a parking permit for his London borough recently, I suggested he use COVID as an excuse for why his driving license address hadn't been changed over in time when it, in fact it was just laziness. Oh my God, oh, well, Cindy. We're all, we're all hoping we don't get asked for our MOTs, aren't we? So I'm sure we are. We're all, you, you know, trying to get a little bit out of it. I like to think it was a victimless victimless act (laughs) Melissa and Harry thank you very much and that's it for this week pick up the issue to read all of the pieces discussed although Melissa's piece was in the magazine a few weeks ago now but you can find it online if you didn't pick up the issue then and also in the issue we've got a diary from Jonathan Sumption Griff Rees-Jones fumes about London's war on motorists and Lynn Barber reviews the new Boris Johnson biography thanks for listening and join us again next week